0: Good evening, welcome to Confidence and Confidence, Partnership in Policymaking Family Leadership for Inclusive Education in Non-Traditional Settings, or as we call it fondly, C2P2FL. My name is Kathy Ratchi-Meyer. I am the Project Coordinator for this program. We are going to have our Understanding Evaluations training tonight, what do the results mean for my child, with Anne Marie Clark, PhD, Corporate Officer from SPIN. A little information about C2P2 family leadership. It, of course, is brought to you by the Institute on Disabilities at Temple University, and our funding comes from the Pennsylvania Developmental Disability Council. Just some little basics about our program, it is designed to support families in inclusive education in non-traditional settings, which include home schools, cyber charter schools, charter schools, private schools, and parochial schools. Of course, all of our sessions have relevance to all individuals with disabilities. A little more information, we also, our project includes online leadership development training, which is what you're participating now. We also offer free one-on-one parent consultant support from our trained parent consultants with PEAK, online resources, and we're having an upcoming live session in spring of 2015. Here are a list of just some of the available archives that we have, webinars that we have archived on our site. If you look at the bottom, you can see the address that you can go to. You can always Google it Institute on Disabilities at Temple University. We're under programs for family leadership, and you can see all of the past webinars that we've had over the last few years. In addition to the webinars, the PowerPoint and other supporting materials are available at that location. And as you can see, we've had several different topics, and as well. Additionally, our next save the dates is our next webinar Wednesday, which is the same date in March, March 18th. At this time, we're going to be doing a session on cyber safety. It's going to be a really interesting, exciting session for all of our families. We're also adding a new um, component to this program. As you see, we have an email address listed there, cyber safety c 2 p 2 fl at Temple University EDU. And we're going to be taking your questions up until March 17th. So So at any point throughout the the next month, Please send us your questions, whatever your area of concern is, thoughts, or interests. We're gonna collect them and answer them online at the next session. It will also help guide our session to make sure you're getting the most out of the session and the information that you really need. And we're following up this year with our live event, a Transitions Forum at Visions for Equality in Philadelphia, May 9th. Uh, It's gonna be on secondary transition. So if you have a child in middle school, late elementary school and onward, this is a session for you. You're going to get information about what you need to do to start preparing your child when they're younger, as well as what you need to do when they get older and when you want to move forward. We will be taking applications for this session, and space will be limited. It will give you a great opportunity to hear presenters as well as network with other families. So a little more details about the components of this program. We mentioned our one-on-one parent consultant program. This is through the Pennsylvania Education for All Coalition that we collaborate with. Our parent consultants will be matched with you to help you, assist you with any of your needs. And some of the support that can be offered is in person, over the phone, or in, over email. There's a link listed here that you can go to to complete the form and request parent consultant. Additionally, um, if you have any questions, you can always, as I've mentioned before, go to our website and you can um, scroll through it to get to this location as well. And some of the ways that, um, excuse me, Some of the ways that PEAT consultants can assist you are listed here, whether it be getting resources and supports, understanding your rights, going over your IEP, Individualized Education Plan or Evaluation Report, suggesting strategies, attending IEP meetings, pretty much anything you need we can help you support. We also have online resources. We have a Facebook page, which is a closed group. Again, the link is listed here, and you can always reach us through our main website. You will be accepted within a few days, and we do keep it as a closed group so that we can comfortably speak about whatever we would like to discuss. Um, We hope you'll join our Facebook page. We're hoping to build a robust community of families for discussions. And some basic housekeeping items. If you go to the Q&A box and you have a question about tonight's topic, this is where you're going to type in your questions. You click the question mark symbol at the top right of your screen to open the Q&A box, and then you type your question. However, if you have a technical question, if you're having difficulty and need support, you will go to the chat box at the lower portion of your screen, select the name Tech Help in the menu. So again, it's Q&A for questions for our presenter, and for technical support, it's the chat box. And again, tonight's webinar is Understanding Evaluations, What Do the Results Mean for My Child with Anne-Marie Clark. I just want to remind everyone that at the end of this session, you are going to be asked to do a brief evaluation on tonight's webinar. We greatly appreciate if you take the time to complete this evaluation. It helps us know what we need to do to move forward. If you stay on your webinar as soon as the program closes, your webinar, your website your, should go right to this survey. You will not be able to click on the survey in the... Screen. It will automatically take you there. Additionally, after the session, we will be emailing everyone with information about the session, including notice that the PowerPoint will be uploaded to the website, as well as the archived webinar and other documents that relate to this session. So again, we are now going to move into Amory marie Clark and a little bit about Amory. marie uh, She is the Corporate Officer for Behavioral and Developmental Services at SPIN, where she oversees SPIN's Philadelphia Autism Center for Excellence. She is a licensed psychologist and a certified school psychologist with extensive experience working with young children and families, particularly those impacted by autism. She obtained her master's in counseling psychology from LaSalle University and her doctorate in school psychology for Temple University. She taught in the graduate psychology programs at LaSalle University and Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine for almost 20 years. She served as commissioner member on the Mayor's Blue Ribbon Commission on Children's Behavioral Health in 2006 and 7, and currently serves on the leadership committee for the Philadelphia Autism Project. I hope you enjoy her fabulous presentation. Kathy, thank you so much for that nice introduction.
1: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm glad to be spending some time with you this evening and hoping to help you understand evaluations that your children may be receiving in different venues. Um, Our goals for this evening, we have about four of them. Basically, what I wanted to try to do is provide an overview of different types of evaluations that your child may be receiving. Um, Consider how we could use those different evaluations together more effectively, perhaps, and look at how the results of the evaluations may link to interventions and services for your children through either the educational system or the behavioral health system, perhaps, and then answer any questions you have about using evaluations to support success in school and beyond for your child. So I wanted to start with a few terms, because I know over the time that I've worked with families, different terms get bandied about in terms of um, what exactly is an evaluation or what is an assessment. So essentially, measurement, I wanted to start with. That's the basic process where we're trying to figure out the different dimensions of an attribute. And really, if you think about a ruler as a measurement, right? we're using a ruler to try to measure the length of something. And length is the attribute of an object. So length of a table, length of a chair, something like that. And in psychology or education, we also use measurement. We're using different tools to measure different attributes that um, children or adolescents may be experiencing, such as reading level, math levels and things like that. An assessment is building on different measurements, and it's a process really where we're gathering information to monitor progress or make decisions about a child. And it certainly includes tests and measurements, but it also would include observations, interviews, and things like that. Evaluation is a piece that builds on that and sort of integrates with it. And essentially, that's a process where we're looking to determine whether the person meets any preset criteria. And that could be, in this case, what we are evaluating in schools. We're evaluating often to see if the child meets the preset criteria for eligibility for special education, or perhaps in the behavioral health community or the medical community, we may be evaluating to determine whether the child meets the criteria for a particular diagnostic assignment. So essentially, with that evaluation, we're looking at the evaluation essentially as the most complex process. We're trying to figure out whether, again, as I said, that child is eligible for a particular diagnosis, a particular educational classification through that evaluation. And related to that, then, we're trying to make a determination of what kinds of services and supports would promote that child's success either within the educational environment or with some sort of related service that could promote success in the educational environment. I wanted to highlight for the listeners different types of evaluations because one of the things that is important to remember when we look at evaluation is that when they are obtained from different Settings or um, different sort of venues, such as medical evaluation versus a behavioral health evaluation, they have different mandates um, assigned to them. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But basically, I think for children, the three types of evaluations overall could be a medical evaluation, a behavioral health evaluation, and an educational evaluation. With those three, primary types of evaluations providing different information that could be useful and could be integrated in order to better understand a child's um, developmental picture and again then make some decisions about what's useful for them within schools. So medical evaluations, if we wanted to start there, are completed by a physical health provider. So this could be a physician such as a pediatrician or a pediatric specialist like a pediatric neurologist. Um, a developmental pediatrician, or other pediatric subspecialty. Um, It could also include other medical providers like audiology, speech pathology, occupational therapy, and so forth. A medical evaluation, it's important to remember, results in the assignment of a medical diagnosis, if that's appropriate. And um, the reason why I think it's important to talk about that is we're going to look at some places where medical evaluations Overlap with behavioral health evaluations and where those two diagnostic buckets overlap a little bit, and then some places where they're very separate. Some medical diagnoses that a child can receive or an adolescent can receive may help qualify a student for special education eligibility, you know, and that could be in the case of hearing impairment, a student with a medical diagnosis of paralysis or some sort of medical diagnosis of traumatic brain injury, centralized auditory processing disorder, or autism. Related to that, when we see a child has had an initial medical evaluation, the frequency of evaluation, for, or excuse me, of a reevaluation or a follow-up evaluation is always determined by that medical provider. They may ask the family to come back in six months and a year, um, but basically that physician, that medical doctor, is responsible for prescribing the course of treatment and intervention. and sometimes they will do that in conjunction with other specialists or allied health providers. So most of us have been to a primary care physician who then may refer us to a specialist. So again, in the case of a child, who's having some difficulty learning, you may start with your primary care pediatrician. They may refer you perhaps to a pediatric neurologist for some sort of neurological evaluation. They may also then refer you to an occupational therapy or speech therapy evaluation. Sometimes those evaluations will then come back and inform a course of treatment. Sometimes that could include medication or it could include the provision of other sorts of, quote, medically-based therapies like OT or speech therapy that's done outside of the school setting. So I think that's important to think about. Um, And obviously the families are very, very important there as well as other parties along with the medical provider in determining the course of treatment that would come with that evaluation. On the behavioral health evaluation, this is a very, very common evaluation that is received by many students with learning differences or behavioral differences within the school setting. A behavioral health evaluation must be completed by a licensed behavioral health provider, and that is typically a licensed medical doctor or a psychiatrist, right? A psychiatrist is a physician with a specialty in psychiatric medicine, so they would be an MD or a licensed psychologist who would typically be a PhD or something that you may see on evaluation reports that will say capital PSY.D, which is a PsyD degree, that's a doctorate in psychology, so um, a different type of clinical doctoral license degree in psychology. And occasionally you might see some licensed psychologists that have an EDD um, after their name. But The license piece is the critical part here. Um, And again, I'm going to differentiate that a little bit more when we get into talk about school evaluations because in order for a behavioral health evaluation to be acceptable, the person has to be licensed in the state in which they're providing service. Um, That evaluation will result possibly, if it's appropriate, in the assignment of a behavioral health diagnosis. There is some overlap between what's considered a medical diagnosis and a behavioral health or physical health. Um, Let me restart that over there again. There's overlap in some areas between what's considered a behavioral health diagnosis and a medical diagnosis. And two good examples of that are autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. Children can receive those diagnoses in either a medical community, like a developmental pediatrician or a developmental neurologist, pediatric neurologist office, but they could also receive those diagnoses from a licensed psychologist. Where that diagnosis is first rendered isn't necessarily critically important, as long as an appropriate diagnosis is rendered. But the eligibility for treatment that comes after that may be different in the medical community versus the um, behavioral health community. So the course of treatment that each system would prescribe for that child could be very, very different. And as is the case with a medical diagnosis, a behavioral health diagnosis may also help to qualify a student for special education eligibility um, in conjunction with some other factors. When you have a behavioral health evaluation, the schedule for re required to assess the ongoing appropriateness of the behavioral health treatment is established really by the insurance carrier, the medical insurance carrier. So they will tell the providers that are, are issuing those evaluations how often they want them redone, whether it's on an annual basis, a six-month evaluation or review, um, but basically, the insurance company kind of sets the tone or the schedule for when those reevaluations need to be done to establish the necessity of those services. And as with most things, um, the determination of that is something that families have a right to appeal or to request some reconsideration for. A couple of things that I wanted to sort of zero in on, um, particularly for folks in non-traditional school settings, is one of the most common types of behavioral health evaluations that parents look for for their children are evaluations when the parent feels the child has behavioral disruption that's interfering with his or her ability to access their education. So, That is typically when um, people seek an evaluation for wraparound or BHRS, which stands for Behavioral Health Rehabilitation Service. In order for those services to be approved for a student, um, the clinician and the family need to establish what's called medical necessity for those services, which means that the clinician needs, the licensed clinician needs to be able to demonstrate some sort of higher level of need, which is typically a health and safety threat for the child within the school environment if that level of care is not provided. Wraparound services are considered a higher level of care. They need a prior authorization, and the evaluation is that piece that seeks the prior authorization. The evaluation launches the bid for an authorization of this higher level of care medical service for this child on the behavioral health insurance panel. So that's, I think, a key thing to remember there, that behavioral health services are provided based on establishing a standard of medical necessity. Um, And I think sometimes that gets a little um, confusing for families that I've heard from over the years about what constitutes that, and, and that's something certainly we can discuss in more detail with questions if people have them. Within the umbrella of behavioral health rehabilitation services or wraparound services, there are three distinct services that students can be made eligible for. One would be a behavior specialist consultant who would develop and oversee the implementation of a specific behavior intervention plan that emerges from the evaluation. So for example, if the child is having a lot of difficulty with maintaining their attention in a classroom without behavioral disruption. So maybe they're having behavioral outbursts in the classroom, the behavior intervention plan would have to target that behavioral goal that's identified as part of the initial evaluation. The therapeutic staff support, or the TSS, is the ongoing one-to-one behavior staff that is charged with the implementation of that behavior plan and the collection of data that would support the ongoing monitoring and management of that behavior plan um, within the treatment protocol. And then the third service that's available there is a service called mobile therapy which is provided by a master's level therapist who can provide therapy to children or their families together to address emotional issues that are likely related to some of the problem behaviors that the child is demonstrating that have established the necessity for the BHRS service. Within behavioral health evaluations, the clinician often will use standardized tests or measurements. So we're using standardized measures to make some determination about the child's behavior or clinical presentation. And some of, I put some of the test acronyms here for you to review um, that you might be seeing in reports. There's something called the BASC-2, which is the Behavior Assessment System for Children Second Edition. The CBCL, which is the Child Behavior Checklist, is often being used within the behavioral health community. You may also see some depression or anxiety inventories that are being. Um, utilized. The Aachenbach scale is another way that people would refer to um, some other behavioral measures. And then oftentimes, if the child has autism um, or has a question of whether they have a diagnosis of autism, you may see that behavioral health evaluation utilizing some autism-specific instruments, such as something called the ADOS-2 or the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, Second Edition, or the Social Responsiveness Scale. The social communication questionnaire, those are all other types of instruments that would be more specifically targeted to rule out a question of a diagnosis of autism. Within the behavioral health evaluation, the clinician is going to be integrating all of the above sources of information, and along with that, A patient interview, talking to the child or the adolescent, a parent interview, and wherever possible information from other providers as well, such as input from teachers, input from other professionals within your child's, you know, support team. And then they will be coming to a determination of whether the child meets diagnostic criteria for a particular diagnosis. And once they determine whether there is a diagnosis at play for your child within the behavioral health arena, they would be making recommendations for behavioral health treatment across a whole continuum of services from least intensive to most intensive. And then those recommendations would, of course, be also across environments. And I think recognizing that there is a continuum of services on the behavioral health treatment side is an important thing to remember You know, many of you are probably um, familiar with the continuum of options on the um, IEP side, right? So obviously on the education side, we're charged with going from least restrictive to most restrictive and always providing services in the least restrictive environment. This is sort of the corollary on the behavioral health treatment side as well. We typically don't jump to a highly restrictive or intensive service unless we have some data to suggest that that is necessary um, without trying something that could be least restrictive or intrusive, such as an outpatient service or an outpatient group social skill or something like that. So the full continuum on the behavioral health side um, extends from outpatient services, which don't require prior authorization, all the way up to inpatient hospitalization or residential treatment. So essentially, we are charged as licensed clinicians with establishing that standard of medical necessity for each level of care that we're recommending other than outpatient. So I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the full evaluation should, a good evaluation, if you're looking at evaluations that your children have received, Hopefully, you're getting high-quality evaluation. That would include a review of prior records, both behavioral health records and hopefully an integration of some educational records or any other medical reports that your child may have from medical specialties that could be relevant to behavioral health presentation. As I mentioned, also a clinical interview with the child, adolescent, and the family. Observation of their behavior within the clinic setting and if we're able to um, get information about how that person behaves otherwise. But the behavioral observation within the clinic setting, you may sometimes see within the reports referred to as a mental status exam. That's a key element that has to be included in every behavioral health evaluation. And then there will also be a review of psychosocial history. The family history, and this is important, that would include a review of the family's behavioral health disorders as well, along with the child or adolescent's community involvement, their educational history, if they're an older child and perhaps they have a part-time job, anything that would be related to occupation, social relationships with friends and siblings and so forth. I want to go back to the part where um, I mentioned that it has to include a review of the family's behavioral health and educational history as well. And I know that within my clinical experience, this is an area where I have a lot of questions from families. Why Why are you asking me so many questions about myself, my husband, my aunt, my uncle, when I'm here to be evaluated for my child? And I think kind of like we know on the medical health side, that when you have a parent with heart disease or cancer, we become much more at risk for heart disease or cancer as their biological relatives. The same is true with behavioral health disorders. If you're presenting with a child with a behavioral health concern, whether it's a developmental disability concern like autism or something like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or depression, anxiety, it's critically important that the diagnostician has all of the information about what other people in your family May have struggled with because that helps us do our differential diagnosis in terms of figuring out what risk factors may be at play for your child diagnostically um, in terms of the behavioral data. So it gives us a nice framework for interpreting the behavioral data, the testing data that we're getting. So I would urge people to be honest and frank when you're participating in a behavioral health evaluation, and to be as candid as possible with the interviewer in revealing as much as you can about you know, all the things you know about the behavioral health history of your family. So I want to switch finally to the third type of evaluation, which would be an educational evaluation. Educational evaluations are completed by a certified school psychologist and other school personnel. And I think that's important to recognize, again, how these personnel may differ in part from a licensed psychologist. Some school psychologists who are certified are also licensed psychologists, but they do not have to be. So for this reason, within the school setting, for example, most schools will not be doing an initial diagnosis of autism. They may be doing an educational classification of that, but they may not be doing the diagnosis because they can't do it within the school setting. They can't assign the medical or the behavioral health diagnosis of autism unless they have a license. So that's an important thing, I think, for families to recognize and tease apart when they're looking at their evaluations. Um, Other school personnel, such as regular education teachers, special education teachers, behavior specialists, or other school-based allied health providers like occupational therapists, physical therapists, and speech therapists can also participate within an educational evaluation depending upon the referral question for that child. An initial evaluation to determine educational eligibility for special education results in the school evaluation or the educational evaluation Determining whether the child meets that two-part criteria that makes them eligible for special education services. And I'm hoping most people may be familiar, but I want to just review that because I think this is very, very important. A child, in order to be eligible for special education services, which means in order to be eligible to have an IEP within a school system, A child's educational evaluation has to determine that that child has a recognized educational disability and requires specially designed instruction or special education services to make progress in the regular education curriculum. That two-part criteria has to be met, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So the initial evaluation decides whether that child, or determines, excuse me, whether that child meets eligibility criteria for special education. And then if that child does meet eligibility and begins a special education course, there is a reevaluation that is required on a prescribed schedule. And that is every two years if the educational classification is intellectual disability or every three years for a student who is classified under any other educational classification. I wanted, um, again, for for folks who may not be fully familiar with what the the whole range of educational disability classifications are, I just wanted to list them here for you and just briefly explain what they would be. Intellectual disability is um, a cognitive disability where a child's overall IQ would fall at or below um, 70. An IQ score of 70 is measured by an um, IQ test of one kind or another. Serious emotional disturbance is another educational disability classification that would be for children with chronic behavioral health um, disabilities. Could be for children with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, other acute behavioral health disorders, conduct disorder, and so forth. Orthopedic impairment is for students with physical disabilities. Perhaps students with paralysis or who um, require some sort of physical mobility support, wheelchair, crutches, things like that. Hearing impairment and deafness, I think is fairly self-explanatory, as well as speech and language impairment and visual impairment, including blindness. Autism, obviously, again, I think is, is really for any students who have received an autism spectrum diagnosis. That would be their classification. Traumatic brain injury could be for a student that has some sort of brain-based injury, whether that would be a prenatal or an early childhood brain injury, so either a um, congenital or an acquired brain injury, such as an in utero stroke or, God forbid, a serious fall, gunshot wound, something like that that would result in a traumatic brain injury. Other health impairment is a broad category within which students could classify for educational disability if they had a physical or a medical condition, such as an ADHD falls into this category, that would result in difficulties accessing their education. Even this could be applied to a student with a very, very serious physical health condition, perhaps a student with sickle cell disease, or a student with a chronic health condition um, that has significant, significant impact on their ability to access their education. Also in this category, listing of categories, would be students with specific learning disabilities. So this could be a disorder of written expression, verbal expression, or mathematics. Um, Deaf-blindness is something, again, I think that's fairly um, self-explanatory. And then multiple disabilities, is the category for students that maybe have more complex support needs. So these could be students with both autism and an intellectual disability, an intellectual disability and an orthopedic impairment, an intellectual disability, a brain injury, traumatic brain injury, and an orthopedic impairment, and so on and so forth. So they tend to be the students with the most complex um, support needs. So again, the Educational evaluation can use results from other prior medical or behavioral health evaluations as appropriate. So an example of this would be um, a child maybe transitioning to kindergarten who has recently been diagnosed by autism or, excuse me, diagnosed with autism. By a developmental pediatrician in a medical community the parent could present to the school with that diagnostic evaluation and the school could accept that diagnostic evaluation of the child as a person that's been identified as having autism and not have to reevaluate whether or not the autism is present What they would be doing the initial evaluation on would be integrating that diagnosis and then looking at the full package of what the educational meaning of that diagnosis is for that child. Um, Similarly, if you had a behavioral health diagnosis assigned to your child of something more. Serious, uh, serious psychiatric disor- disorder or something like that, you could present that to the school, and the school could accept that evaluation and integrate that along with other aspects of an educational evaluation to figure out what exactly is the right course of special education planning that would perhaps be necessary for that child. I think the one thing that is always important for us to remember is the assignment of a diagnosis that results in a child falling into the educational classification doesn't guarantee eligibility for special education unless that second criteria that two-part criteria is met so that's something that um, we want to pay attention to i'm just looking there's a question that just came in that asks under the specific learning disability classification does there need to be a specific diagnosis that you get from a certain specialist. The specific learning disability diagnosis or classification is typically made by a school psychologist within the context of a school-based evaluation. So that is something that school psychologists are acutely well-trained to be able to, to render a specific learning disability diagnosis. So I, I hope that answers your question. But that you don't necessarily need an outside professional to do that. That that um, educational classification or diagnosis can be rendered within a school setting. Okay. So when might a parent request an educational evaluation? And I put this in here because not knowing who all was going to be on the call, we would want you know I would want people to be thinking about geez, if my child is struggling, how do I know it's time to ask for an evaluation? And I think these are some of the presenting problems where I would encourage you to talk to the school about getting an educational evaluation. If the student is having consistent problems getting along with others, whether that's getting along with them specifically within the school setting or some things in the community setting that might be carrying over into the school. Whether they're having difficulty communicating their wants and needs or understanding the things that other people are saying to them, you definitely want to be asking for an evaluation educationally. If the child appears to have a lack of interest in age-appropriate activities or a significant difficulty with ability for age-appropriate activities, you would want to be talking to the school about an evaluation. Similarly, resistance, and I would emphasize that resistance is a pretty big word there. Um, You know, if the child is very, very resistant to change, if there appears to be a rigidity or an inflexibility in their tolerance for disruptions in schedule, unexpected things happening, you may wish to talk to school about an evaluation there. Um, Anything seeing or hearing, interfering with their ability to communicate. So if the child has gotten a vision evaluation and they're still having problems in school, even with corrective lenses, that they don't appear to be making sense of the the printed word or what the teacher has on the board for them, you may want to be talking to the school about that. As I mentioned earlier, health problems that are affecting their educational performance, um, which could include, as I mentioned earlier, Attention problems, and then difficulties performing tasks that require reading, writing, or math, or any kind of chronic behavioral or social problems. So you have a couple other questions coming in here. One of them is, is would generalized anxiety disorder be considered an otherwise health impairment? And I think that's a maybe. Um, the answer to that question is certainly I think it could be, because it is a behavioral health diagnosis. Um, I think some of that would depend on how acute that anxiety disorder would be for that child and how much interference that would, be, um, that would pose for that ch- child educationally. Um, someone asked about whether the one-on-one consultation is available for people outside of um, in other parts of Pennsylvania, and I'm getting the question answered with a yes. Um, And then here's another question where someone says, I believe the prior attendees question may have been because you will often see an educational eval identifying a student with eligibility criteria of an SLD and yet the school certified psychologist will not specifically identify what the SLD may be. I Think they should be identifying what the specific learning disorder may be. I mean, I would If if you're receiving an evaluation that says they've been identified as having a specific learning disability, you would want to press that school psychologist and that educational team to highlight for you what that specific disability is, because that is going to translate into what sort of recommendations, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, that you might want to see put in place to address that within the interventions um, under the category of your IEP. So again, I would always encourage you to go back um, and look at that. So another questions come in asking for how we can get schools to accept private evaluations after the school evaluations are incomplete. How can we get it? Okay, the one about outside evaluations, I just I muted that temporarily because I wanted to kind of get a sense of I was having a hard time reading your question there. Um, essentially the schools are encouraged to incorporate outside evaluations. I think the one thing when families go outside for evaluations I would encourage you to seek an evaluation by someone who is a certified school psychologist those evaluations often translate better back into a school accepting that evaluation Um, if you disagree with an evaluation obviously you could request an independent evaluation through your district if you don't believe that that um, evaluation captures your child you can certainly disagree with that open a grievance process, and ask for, um, you know, an independent evaluation. Question is, will we get a copy of the PowerPoint? The answer is, yeah, tomorrow. tomorrow. It should be ready tomorrow, I'm being told, on the website. Okay. so when you want to request an educational evaluation, you can do so at any time. My recommendation always is to make that evaluation in writing. And then again, a good school evaluation should include a review of the student's records, including their attendance and report cards, right? Because if a kid's missing school 65% of the time, that may be one of the reasons that they're having some difficulty in school. So you'll often see that referenced in a good school evaluation. It should also include a review of students' vision and hearing. I always want clinically to rule out any difficulties with vision and hearing. So the school may ask you or, or, you know, encourage you to get that checked through your medical provider to make sure that there aren't any things there that could be negatively contributing to the student's performance. If there are outside evaluations, the school evaluation should include those. I would encourage you to um, persist with at least their review and integration of that information into a school evaluation because in my professional opinion, that makes those evaluations much, much stronger. Also, will include some curriculum-based assessment to determine how that student is doing on school grade-appropriate performance standards within the core academic subject. Additionally, a school evaluation will include instruments that measure performance in the areas where the concerns have been raised. So again, if the concern is about how well the student may be reading or writing, um, whether they're able to listen in school, you're probably going to see an evaluation that's focused more on some kind of ability or IQ measure, some academic achievement measures, some processing measures like visual processing, auditory or sensory processing measures, as opposed to a student that's having more of a behavioral problem. Um, where there is no concern, you know, suppose learning is great, all the grades are great, it appears to be much more of a behavioral or an emotional issue, the educational evaluation may arc more in that direction. You will also see sometimes for some students some evaluations of motor skills, fine motor, which would be the small muscle coordination of the hands and so forth, and gross motor, sort of walking, physically accessing the school environment. School evaluation should also include a systematic observation of the student's behavior in the classroom and or the areas where the student is displaying difficulty. So you want to get an idea, eyes on that kid to see where the difficulty is presenting itself. And at this point, if there's a significant behavioral component to it, the school evaluation may also include a functional behavior assessment if the behavior is interfering with the academic progress. So questions just come in and says, is it possible that, for example, if the first of the two-part criteria is met by a diagnosis of development or speech delay due to Down syndrome, the second part could be denied because the child technically could, quote, still make progress without special ed. I'm going to talk about that in a a couple examples in a few minutes. If you could be patient with me, I think we're going to get there um, in a minute. All right? And then um, the last part of the evaluation should be input certainly from the parent and the student if the student is able to give input. School evaluation reports are going to result in an ER, which is something you might hear, an evaluation report being presented to you. That evaluation report should focus not only on the areas of need of your child, but their skills and their strengths as well. And that individualized pattern of skills, strengths, and needs for the child should be what drives the determination about individual services and supports that he or she is going to need. And then also wanted to put that the evaluation, make sure everybody is aware, that an evaluation has to be completed within 60 calendar days of the written request and the signing of the permission to evaluate for the child. So that educational evaluation report will come to a conclusion um, and state whether the child has a disability, educational disability, and whether that child is has been found to be in need of special education services. So the evaluation report may state, which goes back to this last question, that your child isn't eligible and doesn't need special education services. There are times when a student may have A medical diagnosis, um, I mean, the example that was given with Down syndrome, um, it's more than likely that that student is going, in the case of a student diagnosed with Down syndrome, to be found to not, or excuse me, it's more than likely that that student is going to be found eligible for special education given the nature, typically, of what we see with a Down syndrome diagnosis. It is possible, however, um, and I'll give you a case. Years and years and years ago, for example, um, worked with a younger student that was transitioning to school that had an in utero stroke and was born with some motor impairments um, but had compensated so early in life that even though this young child had this well-documented medical medical diagnosis of an in-utero stroke and a hemiparesis, um, she was not in need of special education services because she wasn't having impact in her ability to learn within the educational environment. There were no documented cognitive delays, achievement delays, um, and the motor delays had been so well compensated for because this is how this kid accommodated her life early on that there wasn't really any classification made eligible for um, the physical disability. So the report is going to tell you whether or not the child is eligible and start to lead into recommendations for the type of service that your child will need. Um, You receive a copy of the evaluation report and a written notice that tells you you have the right to disagree and that you can request an independent evaluation. Um, and just remember that a copy of those must always be given to you. Um, I have a question that's come in here. Let me see if there's two. I think we missed one. Okay. Um, child transitioning from preschool to the school district who currently only receives speech services for a diagnosis of apraxia. The school district most likely would not do a full MDE and would wait until the school year began to do an evaluation. Um, I think that this is what happens when we have students, and this is not only in Philadelphia, I can tell you I've worked in my career in other counties, that sometimes when students have what are called, quote, speech-only evaluations, the school district um that's receiving them for kindergarten will transition them with the speech and language services there's a term called pendant that iep would be carried over and be held pendant while that student starts kindergarten so they don't necessarily do a full evaluation on those students but when they go into kindergarten they they continue to receive their speech and language services and are monitored through that process of special education and then are very able to be identified fairly quickly if difficulties with other areas start to emerge. So that's, that's the process that is followed by um, many of um, the school districts in the region. Okay, so what I've just been told is that many of you are sending your questions through the chat box as opposed to through the Q&A box. So just make sure that you use the question and answer link um, so that I can see those. And it is the question mark um, icon at the top in the center of that right column on the screen that you're viewing now. Okay? So I just want to make sure that we're able to get and respond to all of the questions. so here comes a question. What should I know about the Woodcock Reading Mastery Test and its used to measure progress and regression and its used in identifying IEP goals? I certainly know that um, the Woodcock tests are extremely well-regarded. Um, I have not personally used the Reading Mastery Test in many, many years, so I have not used the third edition. Um, what I would encourage you to do is to um, talk to your school psychologist maybe request an appointment with the school psychologist and ask them to speak with you specifically I do know in a general sense that most of reading inventories or reading measurement instruments target specific areas of deficit and are able to track progress for students over time and you know obviously if you're able to track progress you're also able to look at regression and how that student's progress is falling out against the developmentally appropriate norm as they continue to age. Because sometimes as kids continue to age, their scores may flatten out because their skill level in a particular area may not um, maintain pace. They may do well as a younger child, but they may not maintain pace as they continue to get older. So it sometimes looks like their scores flatten out or perhaps even decline a little bit if that's kind of what you're getting at with that question. Okay, Um, let me just move on to the next. We only have a couple more. I wanted to talk about um, the terms that you might see in the evaluation, and then certainly we're going to have a good bit of time to come back and answer the rest of the questions here. Um, So terms that you might see, cognitive ability is something that you might see in an evaluation report. And perhaps it's easiest to think about this as IQ, right? We talk about IQ a lot just in general conversation. Um, Cognitive ability measures what we should overall expect of a child that they should be able to do, right? So if I have an average IQ, I should be able to achieve at an average level within school. If I had a, have a gifted IQ, we would expect basically my achievement within school to be in the gifted range. If I have an IQ that falls in the below average or the intellectual disability range, my achievement should align with that. I think it's important to remember about IQ, though, is that it's not a single score. It's basically a measure of several different specific abilities that get combined. And those abilities typically fall on most of the cognitive ability measures into two bigger buckets of sort of verbal and linguistic abilities and then nonverbal or visual spatial abilities. Those are sort of the two broadest categories that most common tests would measure. And when students have a lot of what we would call scatter, which means their individual subtest scores on those different measures vary a lot. The overall score oftentimes is not the best score to use. It's less meaningful if there is a lot of scatter. And then if that's the case, it's important really to look at the the scatter pattern or the score profile for that student when you're thinking about services and supports that will be appropriate for them. And I would encourage you, I'm going to say this, as a school psychologist myself, if you are a parent and you have questions about your child's data or your results, ask for an appointment. Try to go see the school psychologist and talk with them about um, the report and ask them to answer your questions. I would love to believe that they're going to be very interested in doing that with you. So achievement levels, when you see achievement test scores, um, or excuse me, achievement test results on your evaluation report, that's going to be talking about how the student is performing on an individually administered standardized test that would be measuring things like reading, writing, spelling, and math. We're going to be looking at those scores on the standardized tests in relationship to how the child is actually doing in the school curriculum, both in terms of how their grades are on the school curriculum, how they're doing in school-based standardized achievement tests. And essentially what we're looking to figure out here is do things line up? You know, When I give the individualized test, is it pretty similar if we're lucky? to how the child is doing in school. You know, a child that's really struggling in school might be struggling and obtain some lower scores on the achievement test. And then also their standardized, you know, PSSA scores or things like that may be falling in a difficult area too there. So we look for what we call mutually confirming data. our multiple data points falling together um, and, and giving us a good picture of the, the student? The differences between the cognitive ability and the achievement measure sometimes may, if there are big differences, that may be an indicator of a learning disability. And the school psychologist and the educational team hopefully would be probing a little more um, deeply into that to identify it. Within achievement level test results, you may see the following terms here, things that talk about the basic skill levels of particular subjects. And that could be, essentially, how well is the child doing in spelling? How well can they read individual words? Decoding is a term which looks at how well can the student break down sounds when they're meeting new words. So, for example, the word cat, can the student decode that and know what the sound of a C is, what the sound of an A is, what the sound of a T is, and can they put that together and figure out that that is the word cat? Fluency is how well is a student able, and this applies obviously both in math and in, in um, areas of reading. How smoothly are you able to move through, or how fluently are, is the student able to move through the reading of basic words or the completion of math problems? It has to gives us a good picture of how well that student's able to access educational readings that they're doing. And then comprehension overall is, does the student understand what they're being asked to read in reading or what they're being asked to do, perhaps, say in word, word math problems or some higher order math problems? And if you can think about it as a continuum, if you're having difficulty with basic skills, you're likely going to be having some difficulty with decoding. If you're not breaking down words well or math well, you're probably going to be having some fluency issues. Think about people that you know who perhaps read very slowly or read very discontinuously. They typically have a hard time remembering or understanding what they're reading. So these things kind of build one off the other and sometimes can lead to a um, a greater picture of the overall problem. But by looking at it in these four different levels, it helps give us gives the school a good picture of where things are breaking down and where we may want to target interventions and put some services and support them. Um, Other evaluations or terms that you might see is we may be looking at some evaluations for adaptive functioning for students. So how well do those students do with activities of daily living, such as eating, dressing, toileting? protecting themselves in the community, do they understand the rules of safety in the community, and so forth. That oftentimes would be more um, referenced in students with more complex disabilities, like intellectual disabilities, students with autism, students with multiple disabilities. Other term you might come across in an evaluation is the term of working memory, which is basically when somebody learns something or you hear something, Are you able to hold that in your memory long enough to transfer that into long-term memory and then be able to come back and access it? So essentially, we're looking at that both verbally and and pictorially for a person, because obviously if we can't store things in short-term memory and transfer them into long-term memory, we're going to have difficulty remembering learning and building on that meaningfully for more complex tasks in education settings. So that's a term that you'll often see um, referenced in educational reports. And then particularly we're also going to see for older students things about transition assessments being referenced. So what interests, skills, strengths, and areas of need do we have to take into consideration for this student as we plan for life after high school? You know, are they verbal? Are they able to communicate in writing? Do they like working with cars? Are they good working with their hands? Are they, um, do they have difficulties working with people, following multi-step directions? Those types of things are very, very important to weave into a transition evaluation. The other thing that I wanted to mention here, just to make sure that everybody's clear, is that all of this that we're talking about is not be confused with the annual homeschool evaluation that is required by the Pennsylvania homeschool law. That evaluation is one that has to be done on an annual basis for any of you who are homeschooling your children and has to be turned into the district um, in which you reside by June 30th. The purpose of that evaluation is to verify that the student has made educational progress and that the requirements of the homeschool law have been followed and fulfilled by the parents. Um, you're responsible as the family member for locating and choosing that evaluator and they have to be a certified teacher or a clinical or a school psychologist conducting that evaluation and that evaluation will consist as it says there of a review of the portfolio of schoolwork some samples of the students work attendance logs instructional logs and an interview with the child So once the evaluation report is done, we will then be moving, obviously, to an IEP or an individualized education report. Obviously, the evaluation report should be driving um, directly into what's recommended in the IEP. So that IEP has to include a description of the type of support environment that the student needs, whether it's a learning support environment. An emotional support environment or a life skills support, which tends to be for those students who have the greatest um, need to learn functional, vocational, and academic skills that are going to help them to be independent later. Emotional support, obviously, for kids with serious emotional issues. And then learning support for students with um, issues in learning in areas of reading, writing, math, or um, written expression, spoken expression. Also then could be looking at some educational placements for students that are specifically blind and visually impaired or deaf or hearing impaired. Um, And then speech-language supports could run a gamut, again, depending on what the level of severity that student has to perhaps some speech therapy, some picture exchange systems to maybe some sort of more sophisticated system of augmentative communication that might be needed. Um, And then again, you could also see some environments for physical support for students that might have some more complex um, functional motor skills that need support within the school environment. You know, autistic support for students with more complex needs related to their autism diagnosis. And then students who could go into an area of multiple disabilities support that would require, again, as we had indicated earlier, um, supports over multiple areas, such as cognitive functioning, physical functioning, um, and maybe some behavioral or emotional pieces there as well. The IEP should also list other allied health services or other supports that might be needed for that student. And I've listed a few of them there, like FM systems, a computer, Extra time on testing, preferred seating within the classroom. There are a number of accommodations that could come in there. And the IEP should also stipulate whether or not that student meets criteria for an extended school year um, based on their perceived need for extended school year to prevent regression. Um, and that's very sort of prescriptive. And again, I would encourage you to talk with your school psychologist and your education support team if you have. Concerned about whether an extended school year program would be appropriate for your child. Okay, so I wanted to talk here about a few examples. Um, and I sort of alluded to this one earlier. A student could be diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder by a developmental pediatrician. Um, that diagnosis could then be accepted perhaps by the school and used as the first part of the special education classification. The education team would then be evaluating that child within the school environment and figuring out what that child needs to be successful within the school. Do they need a particular class size, a student-teacher ratio? What kind of accommodations might they need based on behavior or language support needs? Um, What types of supports might they need related to their restricted areas of interest or stereotypic behaviors? And then they're going to be making the determination around all of those things as to whether or not that child meets the second prong of the criteria for special education. At that point, the family may, if there are some serious behaviors such as elopement, some serious health and safety risks, headbanging, other self-injurious behaviors, serious aggressive behaviors perhaps that may be interfering with that child's ability to be successful within the school. The parents may also want to seek out a behavioral health evaluation to see if they can establish a case with the clinician for the medical necessity of wraparound services or other behavioral health services within the school environment. So that's one example um I would put out there. The second one could be for a student that is diagnosed outside by a medical evaluation or a behavioral health evaluation with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder primarily inattentive type. Perhaps that child is prescribed a medication course by the psychiatrist to target their symptoms of ADHD and the child responds favorably to the medication. Their symptoms reduce (coughs) They do fairly well when they're on the medication, but the parent comes to the school and asks for an educational evaluation based on their diagnosis of ADHD. What we may find for that student, if there are no other related learning issues or other things that are complicating the situation, the educational evaluation may determine that the student doesn't meet the second part of that criteria for special education. However, that student is likely eligible for the development of a 504 plan, which is an accommodation plan that students who don't qualify for special education can receive if they have other health impairments or <clears throat> can't meet the second prong of the criteria that makes medical, or excuse me, makes special education services very needed for them. Um, so that's that's a second example there. The, um, the third one I wanted to give you is if the student is acting out behaviorally in the school and the parent um, has a question about what is causing that behavior acting out. One of the things that we know is that sometimes students will act out behaviorally in school because it's easier than acknowledging that they're having difficulties learning the information. And sometimes we find that that can be particularly more so the case when it's boys, right? It's easier to be a tough boy in school than it is to be a boy who can't read or a boy who can't do math. So the parent could ask for an educational evaluation to make sure that there are no learning differences that could be causing or contributing. I don't want to say causing, but contributing to that student's acting out behaviorally within the school. And lo and behold, that educational evaluation might render a diagnosis of a specific learning disability. And then the IEP would be developed for that student with a diagnosis, or excuse me, an educational classification of a specific learning disability, but then there could be a behavioral support plan written and behavior interventions written within that IEP that would be able to target that student's challenging behavior, which might maybe happen in the subjects that he or she has the most difficulty with. So those are the examples that I had. Excuse me. I apologize for my voice. I'm very happy to answer any other questions that people may have. I think I may um, take a look and see what else is scrolling down here. Okay, here's another couple questions coming in from chat. Um, Is it better to track um, scores on grade-based or age-based scores? That's a good question. Standardized scores for students are best looked at when they're (coughs) age-equivalent. Grade equivalents are not usually the best indicators for students, so I would always encourage you to look at age-based scores, Um, the standardized scores based on age-based criteria is what you would want your school psychologist to be doing. Um, another question is: Is a nonverbal IQ test any less reliable than a regular IQ test? Um, no, I, I think you know all different tests, and, and this is where you want to make sure. And I, I again want to trust in the educational community and the school psychology community here to know that when we're selecting tests, we would be ideally selecting tests with good reliability, whether it's verbal or a nonverbal IQ test. The decision to go with a verbal or a nonverbal IQ test is going to be made by that school psychologist based on their determination of where they think they can get the best read on that child's overall ability. Obviously, if we have a child with very limited verbalization who isn't necessarily able to give us a lot of verbal communication, it's going to be an unfair assessment to rely on a heavily verbal IQ test. If that student is able to respond and, 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 quote, talk to us through other nonverbal means, I think we would want to be doing that and actually getting a better picture of that student. So here's another question, which is, does prompting play a role in test scores? For example, on a a Y-3 testing below average in three areas and meeting questions re-read, explained, and prompting while testing. Would that affect results or is it still considered normal? What I can tell you, um, and I don't want to limit this to specifically the why it, but all standardized tests have specific protocols for what the evaluator is allowed to query. and what they're not, whether they're allowed to reread the question or whether they're not, whether if they reread the question multiple times, whether that impacts the score or not. So that is part of the standardized test administration. Sometimes as school psychologists, we will make the determination to do what we call testing the limit. If we think, for example, that a student is not able, in our professional evaluation opinion, to perform optimally on, say, a timed test. What we may do is give that test in a timed modality, but then do what's called testing of the limits or a non-standard administration of the test and get a sense of how that student is responding when he or she is not operating under the standardized test instruction. They should be reporting both of those administrations separately. And again, I think if you have questions about that, I would urge you to schedule an appointment with the school psychologist and ask them to walk you through the administration and the results of those test scores. Um, Here's another question that says, what can be done if the school doesn't want to incorporate an independent educational evaluation? I mean, essentially, that's where you would exercise your due process rights. You would want to disagree with that decision. You would want to request mediation, then request due process hearing, and kind of go up through your procedural safeguards hierarchy. And I think certainly that would be one of the places where the consulting could be helpful to you, and I would encourage you to reach out to that through the other aspects of this program. Um, could I repeat the two prong criteria for special education and um, so essentially you have to meet diagnostic criteria for one of those identified educational disability classifications that we talked about earlier let me see if I can go back and put that slide up um so prong one Is you have to be able to be identified as falling into one of these educational disability buckets if you will and then the second prong is there has to be a determination by the educational team that you need special education support in order to make progress in the regular education curriculum that you can't make progress with just an accommodation that could come with a 504 plan or something like that that you are Profile is such that you would require special education supports and services in order to be able to access your education And again, I think if you have questions about that I would encourage you to talk to somebody on the consulting part of this project because they could have a more um, In-depth one-on-one discussion with you about that Um, So here's another one what about evaluations from an agency such as CMU which I'm not familiar with or the equivalent or are we limiting this discussion to school-related evaluations? Or can each be helpful to the homeschooler? I apologize, but I'm not sure I totally understand that question. Um, If you want to try to send me something clarifying before we get off, I think I could go back to that. Um, here's another one it says a middle school student with ADHD and having problems making friends and getting along with others what evaluations would be the best to identify key issues and how it can be addressed
0: Um, I mean I think that
1: I mean that's a very layered um, issue I guess I would want first to make sure that the ADHD diagnosis is appropriate for that student. Um, you know, anytime I see a, a parent raising a question about a student, <clears throat> excuse me, having difficulty making friends, keeping friends, getting along with others, <clears throat> certainly the autism slide pops up for me or a spectrum slide pops up for me. Is it more related to anxiety, depression, I think the first step I would suggest is that you seek out some type of behavioral health evaluation and, you know, talk about what the presenting symptoms are that your child's having. Are they anxious about meeting new people so they withdraw? Do they feel sad and irritable, which could be signs of depression? Irritability or anger can also in children be signs of depression, I would want to make sure that parents know that, that depression in children doesn't look like depression in adults look. Children with depression are often overactive, irritable, and um, sometimes just difficult to engage behaviorally or socially. So I would want to get those two things ruled out um, just to make sure that there isn't something else going on and that you're targeting the right type of treatment for that person or the right type of intervention. So this says, for a child with hearing impairment, if only a 504 plan is recommended by the school but they are showing slow learning, should an educational evaluation be pursued? I think here, again, my suggestion to you as a parent would be if you feel your child is falling behind, educationally, you always have the right to request an educational evaluation in writing um, and the school is required to do that for you so i would encourage you to advocate for your child for that if that is something that you feel um, is, is a problem for your child you know i think i would want to you know some of that might be informed by how old the child is you know how new they are to the educational environment and whether they've been giving time within that school setting to make adequate progress and to adjust and accommodate. Um, but I think all things being equal, if you still have concern, I would encourage you to talk to the school and request an evaluation in writing. So here's a question that says, is there anywhere parents can get a comprehensive list of testing protocols that can that can be used for testing their child? <clears throat> There is an exhaustive list. I mean, literally there are thousands. You could overwhelm yourself with um, a listing of, of what tests are out there. Um, I think it's difficult sometimes even for us as psychologists to keep up with every test that's published. It's a large, large industry, and, um, you know, most school districts have a pretty wide range of protocols. And pretty wide range of assessment instruments that they have available for their school psychologists to use. I think um, you know again. I know I keep referring people back to school psychologists, but I would love for for you all to see them as a resource. If you have a question about things, I would love for you to be able to request an appointment and go in to talk to them about your kids, what your concerns are. What types of things and, and what ask them for recommendations of what they think would best measure the areas of difficulty that you think your child is having. Um, because truthfully, there are thousands and thousands of instruments that are out there. And I think your best decision is always going to be to get the evaluation done by someone who's competent with that instrument for measuring that task. That's really a, a good recommendation I would make. So here's another question that says, do schools have to be, quote, state approved for RTI, which is response to intervention? I had a district use a process other than RTI, and we were not allowed to identify the student eligible for special education because they did not have state approved RTI process in place. The student was not eligible via the discrepancies in test scores but could have been eligible for a specific learning disability because the student didn't do well when interventions were put into place. Again, I think the implementation of the response to intervention protocol should be fairly consistent, you know, to what what constitutes a tier one intervention and a tier two intervention. And, um, you know, I think within the parameters of this discussion tonight, it's going to be hard to drill into that. But what I might suggest is that you go back to the school district and ask them what within that district constitutes a tier one intervention, what constitutes a tier two intervention, and what the school district would use as um, criteria for determining the student eligible based on their discrepancy model?
0: So thank you, everyone. We are going to still continue to take more questions. At this time, we are going to be turning off the recording. So if you have any private questions that you did not want expressed and recorded, this is the time to add them to the Q&A box. So again, thank you, and we will begin.